Hi, I'm so excited to be with you today to give the word. Um, yeah, I heard that last week was awesome. I see a lot, and um, now I'm back. And I have a word, and it's going to be good. It is from Joel chapter 2. Um, and so I don't know if you're familiar with the passage, but I'm going to kind of preach from the whole book of Joel. From like, Yeah, so you don't need to read the whole book. I'll try to give you enough context, but just so you know. Um, and so to give you some background, in Joel chapter 2, we started into this place where God begins to release his blessing, right? It's about how God begins to pour out restoration on the land, on the people, on the animals. It pours out his spirit, and it's this message of hope in God's mercy. But what is like before this section of Joel is like desolation. So the chapter actually starts in a period where Israel is in exile, we don't exactly know what time it was, but it's definitely for sure that they were in exile. So now, a place where they already feel apart from God because they're no longer in their homeland. And then on top of that, it says that God has sent a plague of locusts to destroy their crops. And you'll notice the locusts were referenced in the passage we read today, like the, the hopper, the cutter, etc. It's translated so many different ways in a lot of translations because they're just such unique words. But they actually represent the developmental stages of the locust. That's, that's why they're different. And so this locust has come in and just like eaten all the produce and the fruit of the land. Everything that was meant to sustain them. So now they're in exile and the locusts have eaten everything and they have no sustenance. And it's a pretty hopeless situation. But at least there's the hope in the next season, they'll grow new crops. So yeah, the locusts came and they ate everything, but we'll just plant again and things will grow. But we find out in chapter one that in fact, not only have the locusts eaten everything, but now there's a drought and nothing is growing. Isn't that crazy? Not only to not have hope in your current circumstance, but to feel like there's no hope in your future either. And then on top of that, to be in a place where you feel like you're removed from God. And in everything to feel like that there's no tangible evidence that he's with you whatsoever. And in some ways to be like, well, let me just turn to my own devices. I'm going to have to work out my life and my future for myself. I'm going to go seek satisfaction in other things because God has failed me. And this is really relevant to us because I'm sure there's been places in our lives where we feel like, God, you're not with me. Nothing is going the way I planned. Everything I hoped for is lost. We have those places. I have no future. You've abandoned me. You promised me things and now they're gone, right? But it's in the midst of this that we have the prophet Joel saying, come, gather, assemble, and lament. So this whole book is this like Joel calling the people to lament. And what lament means is to cry out, to weep, to be full of anguish about what's happening. And so there's a place of honesty that the people of God are invited into. They're invited to come before God and be honest and say, this sucks. Like we are in a terrible position, but we also recognize that we're here and we're far from you, and we want to be close to you. So Joel invites them into this to say, you still have the opportunity to draw close to your God. And in the midst of that, he says, he will not fail you. 
It's in verse 14, the, prior, the previous chapter. He will not fail you. If you come and you turn, you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And like, who knows what he'll do? Um, and what's interesting is that Israel was actually in this situation because they had already been wandering from God in the first place. So it was actually God's hand that sent this desolation to them. He was the one who sent the locusts. He was the one that brought the drought. And so they could say, like, why are you doing this to me? Like, it's your fault. Why do I turn back to you? Like, you're the one who, like, brought this evil on me. But God is doing this to make them aware of their need, right? He has to bring them to a place of their need so that they can say, you know what? I was going away from the Lord because I thought it was more enjoyable, because I thought I would have more freedom, because I thought it was better. What's a little compromise here and there? But then as I left and the Lord really, truly left me to my own devices, I found out that I have nothing and I actually need him. And so the people are called in verse 17. We see the priests and the ministers of the Lord are lamenting before the altar of God, crying out, one, for his forgiveness because they've been doing their own thing. And two, asking for him to have mercy. But the beautiful thing is that they can ask with confidence for God's mercy, knowing that if they say, God, we absolutely need you. We have nothing on our own that God will answer them. But they have no idea what his mercy will look like. They have no idea what his mercy will look like. And they're simply coming to, like, God, simply deliver us. Like, if you can just, like, take away some of this drought, like, we're good to go. Thank you. You know, like, but God has so much better in store for them. So much better in store for them. And so what we see is like God setting up the opportunity for breakthrough. And so we're going to go through three points today about God's mercy and his blessing. The first thing is that God sets up the breakthrough. God sets up the breakthrough. And in fact, he already demonstrates from the beginning of the chapter that he wants to bless them. Right? It's like the first verse is like, and God spoke to Joel to assemble the people. And from that moment to the end of the chapter, you know that God wants to bless them. Like, well, why is that? It's because he told Joel to assemble the people. He's opening a door to invite God's presence. He says, if you will gather the people and have them pray, I will come. It's crazy, like, that God will put us in difficult positions between a rock and a hard place to simply say, I'm giving you a door to draw closer than you've ever been before. That you thought you've been close to me when times are good. But if you'll draw close to me now, you'll realize that there's so much more. And so that God, in tough situations, that God is constantly setting us up to enjoy more of himself. And if we understand that, we'll be less inclined to get offended. Right? Because my first reaction is like, I am offended. My life is supposed to be easy. Like, you're the God of grace. Like, shouldn't I be like just experiencing so much grace right now where things are smooth and delightful? But then when we understand like, no, like hard places are God's grace too. This is his invitation. And it's so crazy because like in every moment of our life, if God is love, that means the way we are living our lives right now, the things that he set up for us right now is the most loving thing that he could do for us. He would absolutely never compromise his love for you. 
So he's not going to set up a situation that is anything less than something that will lead you to the fullness of his presence. Nothing less. If it's a season of blessing and that's what leads you into his presence, then that's his best for you. If it's a season of testing where you feel like you need deliverance and you're crying out for his nearness, that's his best for you. And so that in every season, he's setting up a breakthrough. He's setting up a place for you to come and encounter him. Now, does that mean you experience the encounter right away? No, that's not the way it works. There is a period, and we don't know how long it is, of drawing near to the Lord. Because honestly, God does that to test what's in our hearts. He does that to Israel to test what's in their heart. Will they turn to him? Will they come and lean on him? Will they find their blessing in him? They don't know if they will or not. Like, they don't know how long it will take, how much trial they have to go through until God releases the blessing. But still, they know they have a word through Joel that at the end, that God will fulfill his promises. And that's the thing that we have to hold on to. You know, sometimes hardship is the only thing that wakes us up. I, you know, I think, like, even a practical example, like, the staff knows, like, I am the world's, like, deepest sleeper. I can sleep through fire alarms, like, and I have slept through fire alarms. Um, But, you know, when I have, like, a test or an exam or something very serious coming up, like, it's much easier for me to snap out of it and be like, I got to go. Like, what am I doing? Um, It's the same. The more serious your life circumstances, the more quick you are to snap out of it and be like, whoa, God is the most important thing, not my job. Not, you know, how comfortable I am. And honestly, we live in a world where Christianity is painted as if you become a Christian, your life will be good. Your life will be easy. There will be grace for everything. Jesus loves you, so you won't have to struggle. But that's not the message that God has promised in the Bible at all. He's promised that you will suffer, that you will struggle, you have trials and testings, and yet he will be there for you. And so this is the hope that Joel is bringing into us when we get to chapter 2. God begins to pour out his blessing. And I, if, you, if you have your Bibles, I just want to point some things out about the nature of this blessing. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 18, it might not be translated in your Bibles like this, but I actually translated this myself from the Hebrew because I finished Hebrew in seminary. Woo! Yes, and so uh, I, I chose what I consider to be the best translations for some of these words, right? In verse 19, it says grain, and then actually you could translate it as new wine and fresh oil. Things that are not, that it might look different than it has in a past season. The blessing that you're entering into may look different. And that you'll be satisfied with it. That even though it's different, it'll be a good thing, Right? If you skip down to verse 21, here is the blessing where God says, do not be afraid land. He like addresses the land and speaks to it because he's God of creation. Land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. This is kind of odd. The Lord has done great things. Joel is prophesying about a future event where the Lord will bring his blessing. Why? Is there a past tense here? That's because this is as his word as as good as done. 
God's word is as good as done. If he gives a promise, he will surely fulfill it. So he uses past tense to basically say, like, I will ensure the fulfillment of my blessing and promise to you. Right? And then, not only is he redeeming the land, he's promising that the land will be redeemed. You know, drought, gone, no more locusts. Then he says, do not be afraid, beasts of the field, for the pastures have sprung, for the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full produce. He's declaring that all living things will be redeemed and restored. And then he says, sons of Zion, to his people, and I will also restore you. Be glad and rejoice, for he has given you the former rain and the latter rain. Now, the former rain and the latter rain were rains that happened in the fall and the spring for the preparation and, like, fruitfulness of the harvest. So he'd send abundant, he's promising, I'll send you abundant rain to prepare the land for what's about to grow. And then as the growing process happens, then I will send abundant rain so that you can take in the full harvest. So he's ensuring that, that through the process, throughout the whole process, that he will send the abundance of his presence and his grace to restore them. Isn't that cool? It's like, you, may, you will not... For sure, I can say this 100% certainty, you will not experience the abundant grace and reigns, like, you know, quote-unquote reigns of God throughout every moment of your life. But you will experience them in the right season. God will pour out his reign to prepare you. You will grow based on the revelation and grace you received during that time. And then he will pour out his grace when it's time for harvest. And that's his promise, is that he's with you during the process, whether the rains are there or not. And then, if you look at the languages in verse 24, 25, 26, the language of this blessing, this restoration that he's promising, says, full of wheat, overflowing with wine, that I will restore to you all that was gone, Right? Plenty, verse 26 uses the words plenty, satisfied, that God will do wondrously. He's basically saying, like, I am promising you more than you can ask or imagine. We see that in Ephesians. If you come to me, if you turn to me, if you seek me, I will bless you with more than all you could ask or imagine. That, like, his grace is sufficient. And so this is the nature of the blessing that God is promising to us. I mean, I don't know about you, but... I'm in. <laughs> yes, <laughs> whatever that looks like, <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> I can't even say for my own life, like specifically what kind of blessing God has in store. But I can look at this and know from his word that I will be fully satisfied and have more than enough, which is more than I could ask for. Because I don't, based on my own behavior, I don't deserve, you know, abundance, Right. Based on my own life and how I've often walked away from him, I don't deserve his grace. Then yet, out of his own love and out of his own character, he says, no, if you, if you simply draw near to me, everything you need, everything that can satisfy you is found in me. And so that's the second thing that we learn about the nature of his blessing. The first is that God sets up the opportunity for blessing. The second is that God ensures his blessing by his character. It's based on the nature of who God is that we will see his blessing. It has absolutely nothing to do with us. Our drawing near is all that's required. 
We simply recognize, God, you are God of everything. You're God of my life. Everything good, the song we just sang, all my fountains are in you. And simply draw near, everything else is God's faithfulness. Because God, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, is a God of covenant. It's pretty crazy. Sets up with a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. Don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure it's chapter 14. He says, you know, Abraham, I will multiply your descendants. And, you know, there'll be as many as the sands of the earth and the stars in the sky. And then to prove a point, he has Abraham set up an altar of sacrifice. And then what's really cool is that it's divided. The sacrifice is divided in two parts. And then God comes as a pillar of smoke and fire. And he walks between the sacrifice. Now, if we're not part of Israel and their culture, we have no idea what that means. But what that meant is if, if someone walked between the sacrifice when they were making a promise to someone... They were saying, like, on my life, like, I promise that this will happen. But what's cool is that usually two parties walked through because two parties are making the agreement. But in Genesis, you see that only God walks through the sacrifice. And he's saying, on my life, on my character, I promise you that this will come to pass. It has absolutely nothing to do with Abraham. God is like, I love you, Abraham. You are mine. I promise this blessing to you, and I will see it to fruition. That God's perfect love, his perfect patience, his perfect faithfulness will ensure what he's promised for the sake of his name. Because what kind of God goes back on his word, right? Then, then why would we worship such a God, you know? Like, if he's going to lie to us and not fulfill his word, then he's not God. He's just a human like we are. But he's fully this loving God who in every way is arranging things for him to bring his promise to fruition. Now, that's pretty cool. And that's what we see happening in this passage. There's basically Israel had just, you know, wandered away from God. God sends them this drought to wake them up. And yet, all they did was, like, come back to him and say, God, we need you. Have mercy on us. And then they actually use the phrase, for the sake of your name. This is what we see in verse 17. Why should we be a reproach? Like, like why should your name, why should we who bear your name be a reproach and be living apart from your blessing? What does that say about you, God? They actually throw his character back to him. They're like, this is who you said you were. And God goes, amen. For the sake of my name, I will deliver you. To show you that I am the Lord of everything. Not only the one who brought this destruction, but also the one who restores and blesses beyond everything you can imagine. I will do it. And you will know that I am God and no other. And he says, this is later on the chapter, verse um, 27. He says, and you will know that I'm in your midst. It is crazy. It's like, I'm not just going to set up these material blessings for you, but you're going to know that I'm in your midst, that I've been here the whole time. It's pretty crazy because in the Old Testament, 
before we had grace, only the prophets had an experience of God. Only the prophets got to be with God's tangible presence. They were the ones who got the prophetic words, who saw visions, who saw, you know, got taken up to heaven to see what was going on there. And everybody else had to wait in the assembly, right? Oh, and the priests, the priests were also, prophets and the priests. The priests were able to enter the tabernacle, but they were only able to enter the place where God's presence was once a year, right? And even then they had to tie a rope around their ankle just in case they died because they didn't do the sacrifices correctly, had to be dragged out. Um, but that was like such a limited experience of the presence of God. Now, God revealed his presence in blessing and in signs and wonders. And so people recognized that's God. Only God could do that. But they themselves could not experience the revelation of his character or the intimacy of his presence. And so what's crazy about Joel chapter 2 and like the best part of the whole thing is God saying, yeah, I'll restore your land. I'll restore your like your fruit, like all of your crops. I'll restore you as people. And then he says... I will reveal to you that I'm in your midst. Behold, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, right? Your old men, your young men will see visions and dreams. Both your handmaids like, and your like, servants, like male and female servants, are going to experience the outpouring of my spirit. Which is crazy because he's saying, Israel, every one of you will have personal access to my presence. I think sometimes in charismatic churches, we get caught up on this verse like, yes, right now we can prophesy, we can see visions, we can have dreams. But that's not the point. The point is that God is now giving everyone access to what only the prophets had access to and the priests had access to. Now everyone is going to have personal revelation, the dreams, the visions, all that is just representing personal revelation of God. At any point, I can go to God and experience him. That's crazy. I mean, like, that's just crazy. What, like, an incredible blessing that God says, from now on, you can come into my presence at any time. And you can experience all of me at any time. I will happily show you who I am anytime you ask. Like, wow, that's so good. So, so good. And we have to ask ourselves, so here is this God who sets up our lives to encounter him. Opportunities for us to turn to him so that we can experience his blessing. And the best of that blessing is actually the fullness of himself revealed to us. And that he himself ensures in his faithfulness that that will happen. That the only reason that that is the case is because Jesus died on a cross. That in, just like we said at the beginning, God initiated, God initiated and said, Joel, assemble the people. Like it was all God's doing, setting up the scene for them to experience their own need and then saying, God, like Joel, assemble the people to turn to me. So for the sole purpose of blessing them, he's like, assemble them so that they can turn to me and I can bless them. That's his message for Joel, assemble the people so I can turn to, they can turn and I'll bless them. And then that was all based on his initiation. The same thing happened through Christ. We did nothing. We had no goodness that could merit our eternal life. No goodness that could merit our eternal dwelling with God. 
You know how you usually want to hang out with people who are like you? You have the same interests, kind of the same character, right? God is the same way. <laughs> he, he wants to spend eternity with people who are like him, who love him, who, you know, enjoy his presence. He doesn't spend time with someone who's going to be like, yeah, I think this, all this other stuff is better. God is a God of relationship. So he, he sends his own son so that he can take care of all the things that removed us from his presence to help us overcome our own obstacles in coming to him. Like, I, like we have our own sin patterns and parts of our personality that will make it difficult for us to come to God. And yet through Christ, we receive the grace of God, the power of God to actually overcome those things. And that in the New Testament, we're promised that he will transform us to be in his likeness, right? And then we fall in love with God and we just can't get enough with him. And then we get to spend eternity with him. Like, it's like the coolest plan ever. Everyone's like so serious. Like it's the best plan ever. So God sends his only son in the flesh. Like when, when I see Christ's, like pictures of Christ's arms reached out on a cross, I'm reminded that those are the arms that were reaching out for me. And in the midst of that, we have someone who demonstrated that he considered himself nothing, leaving all glory in heaven, king of everything. He created the world, like created everything that exists, and he creates himself like nothing less than a servant to show us that even though we are nothing, that we are lowly, that we're not too lowly to be loved. And we're not too lowly to be saved. And that he chose to die in this life so that we could share in his abundant life. Crazy. So in Christ, like, this opportunity to experience God opens up. And that's actually the fulfillment of Joel, as Joel prophesies. When Joel is prophesying, he has no idea that what he's, what he's prophesying about. He doesn't have revelation of Jesus Christ. He doesn't know the Messiah is coming. He doesn't know that God is going to give personal access to himself, to everyone. All he knows is that God is promising to redeem Israel. So Joel is prophesying in the mindset that, because he uses the word your, like possessive, your sons and daughters, like your hand servants and, and servants. Like those words, your, show a possessiveness where Joel is thinking about Israel when he's prophesying. That's his small concept of God, which is so often our concept of God. We think in our own little world and the God's plans are way out here. So much better, so much bigger. And then it's in Acts chapter 2 where Peter recognizes that what God is doing. And it's like, wow, God, you're pouring out your spirit on everyone. First, this little like remnant of Jews who had gathered and waited upon the Lord. Notice that they were waiting, right? Waited upon the Lord for him to show up. And then after that, upon non-Jewish believers, the Gentiles. And then beyond that, to us even today. And Paul writes about how we get to be grafted in. And it's really cool. He's writing in Romans chapter 11 about how we get to be grafted into the promise of Israel. How everything that was promised to Israel, like these promises in Joel, become ours. But what's really cool is that in chapter 10, verse 13, he says this, and everyone 
who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you go back to our passage earlier, the last part, verse 32, Joel says, And it shall come to pass that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved or will be delivered. So, like, Paul is, like, recognizing what's happening. He's recognizing that God, that through Christ, that God is fulfilling his word for everyone to have access to God. That everyone can have access to his goodness and to his blessing. It's crazy. And then the question becomes, well then, all right, everyone? Do you mean, you mean everyone? Like, yeah, like everyone. But not everyone. And what I mean by that is when you look at Joel chapter 1, it says, as the people are gathering to assemble before the Lord and respond to his invitation, it says, and the elders gathered, and the wives gathered, and their husbands gathered, and the young, the infants gathered. It's the people who chose to gather and respond to the Lord's invitation who received the blessing. So you are not entitled to a blessing Unless you respond to the Lord. God didn't just bless, you know, anyone. He blessed those people who responded to him. And so that's for us as well. That for us in Christ, those who respond to Christ become part of the family of God. That's our first blessing. We get eternal life. Like, that's the best blessing. Presence of God forever and ever and ever. Joy forevermore. Like, Everything at his right hand, ours, like authority and like power and just anything that we don't deserve. And then on top of that, that we can experience him now in my daily life right now that I have access to those very same things that are in heaven when I turn to him. No matter how hard it is, even if the season is really difficult and it's okay if it takes a long time. God doesn't expect that his first call of, hey, come to me, will be successful. That we have lots of stuff to work through. We are broken people. And it will take us a while to finally understand our own brokenness and finally recognize our own need. And it's a kind of a cycle that will happen multiple times in our life. One, to refine us, but also to keep us humble that we're not God. So we'll have these times where God is like, Come on, come on, come on, come on. I'm here. I'm waiting for you. I'm ready. I'm ready. And like, you know, who knows how long it takes? Three weeks sometimes. That's pretty fast. You know, <laughs> six months other times, three years other times. But then when we reach it, then we're with God and we receive fresh revelation and experience his grace. And then that, that takes us and we run with that for a while. And then our circumstances happen where God remind, reminds us of our need again. Things seem hopeless again. And then we're in this hopeless situation, being reminded that we can't do it on our own. And then God releases his invitation again. All your fountains are in me. Come back to me. So then we return. And, you know, maybe because we learned last time, it took us three years. <laughs> it was like super hard and difficult. We might come back a little faster, <laughs> you know. But it's this, it's this process of learning to love and delight in God and everything he has to offer. Because it is better than anything else we'll experience here on earth. And then, 
So that's like, like the best part about it. So we have a God who sets up like this encounter. And we have a God who, because of his own character and his faithful love, will ensure that blessing and that encounter. And then the fact that it's for everyone in Christ who like responds to God's invitation. And then we have a responsibility. It doesn't end there. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, like I said, Paul says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will, will be saved, but Paul gets it. He's, he recognizes that blessing is always to be passed on. We're never blessed for ourselves. We're blessed to be a blessing. And so Paul writes in the next two verses, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear about without someone preaching? He immediately recognizes the role that we play. That once we experience the goodness of God and recognize the blessing that he's offering to us, he's challenging us. He's giving us a charge. No longer can you keep silent. You can't keep this blessing to yourself. There are other people who need to hear the invitation. And he releases us to go tell people of the witness, not of like, not of something we've heard, but something we've experienced. Not of something that we know is true in the Bible, but something that God has walked us through in our lives to say, I've lived this and now I know that God is the best. And that we can do that at any time. That in any moment of my week where I find myself something to be thankful for and recognize that God of all things has provided it for me, that I can go tell someone, hey, you know what's awesome this week? God totally just provided for my trip back home. That's true. Someone walked up to me and provided for my flight back home uh, last week while I was in Hong Kong. They're like, we want you to go to your brother's graduation. <laughs> you know, I'm an intern. We don't make a lot of money, right? I was like, I was not sure that I was going to go home in December. But I was like, God, you know, I know you love me. And I don't actually deserve to go back home. I can watch my brother's graduation on a video cast. That's fine. But I, I would like to go give him a hug and be there. And then someone heard that I wanted to go home for my graduation. They overheard me talking about it. And then they just came up to me like, here's enough money. They handed me an envelope. They're like, you should be able to go home two times with that. And I was like, ah, I don't deserve this. Like, I don't deserve this at all. Uh, oh, and like this person hardly knows me, hardly knows me. There's things like that, like God unexpectedly blesses us, especially in the moments when we think we don't deserve it. And that that, like, little stories like that, or, little, or even the story of our testimony, our salvation, or the goodness that we're seeing God work in our family this week, or the friendship that got reconciled because of forgiveness and how we are able to experience forgiveness in Christ, and how, the, you know, a restored friendship or a restored family or a restored job, that those things, when we attribute them to knowing that God gave the blessing, and then we start telling people, people go, at first, they're not going to be like, wow, God. They're going to be like, yeah, sure, whatever. But when, for the sake of his name, God continues to show up in your life, people are going to notice his name as long as we witness about it. And so I just want to encourage us today that we have a hope in God in every season and that God is the author of the story. 
that he sets things up and he's faithful to finish the story off. And that we have an assured ending, that it ends well. And that even now, as we turn to him, we may not experience his presence right away, but it will come. I'm sure Israel did not experience his presence the day the prophecy was released. But it does come. And that above all, that God is the one who brings it to pass. He's the Lord of all things. And that he is the one initiating us even to be able to respond to him. And so I just want to give us an exhortation today. That if we've been trusting in our own ways, we're depending on our own wisdom, seeking after things that don't really satisfy or only satisfy temporarily, to have a fresh heart towards God and to turn to him as the one who can satisfy us in every way and to seek his love and his presence in our lives. That with, if we trust, if we'll simply just put our trust in him and choose, you know what, God, we'll do things your way. Your way is better. That God will overflow the desolated places of our lives.